Welcome to Curiosity Podcast. I'm Mike. And this is Orlando. And we're on episode... 76. 76. Yeah. I just want to see if Mike knew. That was my whole goal. Wow. Is he tracking the episode numbers? I track mostly to make sure that you're doing it right. <laughs> I know. Just kind of like how Mike always feels. Uh, there's a video coming too of how many times Mike has adjusted this mic. Yeah, but it's funny that I'm the one being blamed for it. I wouldn't have to adjust the mic if you if you would just talk into it. <laughs> That's how they work. I don't know, but you know, I, I'm working on it. it yeah. I guess it beats having that awkward headset. Yeah, you're getting better. I have to well, say you're getting a lot better. Thank you, Mike. So I appreciate that. that. But hey, something really important happening today. What do we got going on? So we've got a super awesome interview today. I'm really excited about it. Um, you know, it's one of these these guys that you follow on Instagram. I follow him on Instagram and he's always doing something different. Like he's a reseller, but he's got so many other things going on. It's crazy. It's hard to keep up. He, he lives a life that's just like amazing. And it's so, exhausting. It, it, it's I exhausting say, even watching him. But, yeah. but it's exhausting in a good way. So he's been on YouTube for years. He's actually one of the first people I started watching. I learned so much from. So it's very surreal that... We have him on the podcast today. Yeah, super awesome. So why don't you introduce yourself real quick? Tell us a little bit about who you are, Eric. Well, thanks for having me on the podcast. My name is Eric. Most people in the resale space know me as CP or the college picker because uh, that's kind of when I started reselling was when I was in college. That was seven years ago. Well, seven years ago was not when you started college. It's when you started doing YouTube. Uh, I want to say it was like 20. 2012 or 2011, something like that. Okay. okay. Wow. Maybe, yeah, maybe seven years ago. I don't know. All right. So if you're brand new and listening, all right. So the college picker on Instagram, the college picker on YouTube, are you anywhere else, Eric? Um, that's the, the yeah, the two platforms that I use. Okay. I'm on Twitter, but I just have the handle. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to use it. I get it. So tell me about, so I watched your, actually I did watch your video yesterday from 2013 or something like that. It was, it was back in the day. You had like headphones on your, do you remember that video? Is it like the first one that I ever posted? Yeah. The very first one. Yeah. So I filmed it on like a webcam that's exactly like this, which is a Logitech uh, C, C910 or C920, something like that. And just because it was a little bit better than the webcam that mm. was on the computer, I had used that. I think my roommate had one and the audio was better because it was stereo instead of, I don't know, the bad stuff that's integrated on the computers. But yeah, I filmed it with like the exact setup that I have right now. Yeah. But it's a little updated. Just a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. It's bad. And it's, I'm in a room, I'm in a room where I lived with like a bunch of dudes and it was like really messy and we just we weren't very clean. It was just a bunch of college kids. It was awesome though. So tell us a little bit why you started reselling and when did you start? Cause I remember on that video watching the eBay pages and they look pretty antiquated. So how long have you been reselling for? Um, I actually ha I would say 2000 and eight, 2007 actually okay. would, uh, would probably be where I would say the root of it actually starting was in 2007. And that's when uh, me and my roommates an undergraduate decided to go get our motorcycle licenses because parking was so expensive to, to get uh, parking permits for cars on campus. And it was so hard to get a space. Mm. So the motorcycle parking was always really close to class and it was open and it was only I think like $40 a year for a permit. Nice. So we went and got our motorcycle licenses I bought a bike off of Craigslist for, I want to say a thousand dollars, maybe nine hundred dollars. I put a little money into it, 
about $200, fixed it up, wrote it for a couple of months and I sold it for about a two or $300 profit selling it back on a Craigslist. So I was like, well, how did this work? How did I buy something for this much and then sell it for this much? And we really got into uh, motorcycles at the time, which is kind of weird because usually you start small, not with something so big. Yeah, that's kind of crazy because normally, yeah, you think of people who start reselling and it's typically smaller things going into thrift stores or garage sales or things like that. Um, And then I've always looked at the people who do like car flips or motor vehicle flips as being like high level. Yeah. Like low risk is where you start, not something that you're that has title work and insurance and moving parts and anything, number of things that can go wrong. But yeah, it was a little bit backwards and it was it was definitely not. Um, not planned. It was just something that we figured out is like, well, if we just hound Craigslist and keep hitting refresh, we can find good deals in motorcycles. Cause I was in Tampa and there's a pretty high population of people there and a pretty good motorcycle culture, I guess, to where the, the market was, the, I found a market that I didn't even know existed. Yeah, that's crazy. Were you already kind of like mechanically inclined? Did you fix cars and stuff ahead of time? Or did you learn? No, I, I, I kind of learned as I went. I've always been kind of like tinkery and not afraid to get my hands dirty or to read and to learn. There wasn't really DIY YouTube videos, but I would dig into forums and read like problems with this transmission might need to have like this part tweaked or whatever, but we wouldn't be buying bikes that were completely trashed. It would just be like body work or maybe carbs need to be cleaned or really simple things. Like there are a lot of bolt on bolt off parts. So you could just get a bike that maybe, and people drop bikes a lot. So mm. it's really cosmetic parts, like superficial parts that you could get off of another bike or buy the parts off of eBay or, or from a junkyard or whatever. And um, fix the bikes up and then flip them on back on Craigslist with better pictures, or you just hold on to the bike longer rather than taking some college kids lowball offer. So what what took you away? Because you don't do bikes anymore, correct? Or do you still do every once no, in a while? I, no, I don't. I don't have the space for it. That's the thing is you need ah, the space. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, we we had a garage, a two car garage, and we didn't park any cars in it. We had like eight or nine motorcycles. Nice. Because nice. no, I remember watching that, and I, I remember you talking about like you loved being in the garage, like jamming out and just well, working yeah, but, on the bikes. My wife remembers the days I would just like completely ignore her and go into the garage and work on motorcycles. <laughs> so you knew you knew your wife back then or that when you were... Yeah, I met her in undergrad. Yeah. So she knows nice. this whole bunch of people that I was working. She knows the house that the, the motorcycles were being worked on in. I had pictures of her like modeling on the bikes just <laughs> for fun sometimes. I don't, I don't know where any of these pictures exist, but I wish I would have documented this. I really <laughs> wish I wow. We, I did not know that. Like I, it seemed like your wife came out of nowhere. Like three, four years ago. So you no, I've, don't... Known, I've known her since undergrad. Yeah. So it's like uh, 10 years or so. That's cool. Okay. Yeah. 20, yeah. 2009, 2008, something like that. So when you were going through school, obviously you went to college. Did you think that this would be what you were doing, that you'd be doing reselling and, and this for, for a living or? In some form or factor. Yeah. Because it just saves so much of your money <laughs> like doing it. The lifestyle that it creates, um, it, it's just something that somebody can, if they enjoy finding a deal or like kind of like hacking the system or whatever, in order to lower their costs or to pay for a hobby or whatever, like it's, it just clicks and it, it makes sense. Any other way would just be too expensive mm-hmm. or a waste of money. It seems like. So 
what what had you so I remember initially you were very big about hard goods. I remember in your first few videos, I did some research. <laughs> you were, I remember watching you had said something like I remember you had some Merrill shoes and actually some of the your bolos they had mentioned still are good today, but then you had said like you really don't like clothes. Yeah, I mean, what I mean, you, well, so what happened? Then, Back then I wasn't into fashion at all. Like this was all pre-smartphone, right? Pre-social media. Like I was doing the wrenching on motorcycles before YouTube. So that was like, well, well while YouTube was in its infancy, I think YouTube started like what, 2007, 2008, 2009. Yeah. And that's when I was wrenching on videos or sorry, wrenching on, um, motorcycles instead of making YouTube videos at the time, because if I would have just shifted and gotten into YouTube early, probably would have been a lot better than being some college motorcycle yeah. flipper. But, um, I was always into hard goods because of the motorcycles. We were selling the parts that we wouldn't need off on eBay or the broken parts, or we would like had a nice exhaust on it. We would sell that exhaust on eBay and then put the stock exhaust on it or whatever and sell the bike locally. But I had, uh, I had known sports growing up. I didn't really know fashion. I had no brands. Like I just wore hand-me-downs. So I didn't have a knowledge base of nice clothes and I didn't understand that nice clothes made it to thrift stores or even what nice clothes. I didn't even know what Patagonia was back when I was in early college. Mm. I didn't know any of that. So it was just, I didn't focus on clothes at all. It was just what I knew, which was sports and outdoor stuff and bikes and motorcycles. So what got you there? The only reason I ask is I remember watching this one video. This is when you had that, uh, I would say Ho Chi Minh kind of beard going on. Remember back <laughs> back a few years ago, you said it. So I'm just I'm just repeating. Yeah. But uh, and you were sitting there, and you literally had all these starter jackets, and you had all this vintage, like pretty awesome satin jackets. So what got you? Like, did you just start going to thrift stores and just researching, and then you're like, hey, there, these brands are well, good. It got into the YouTube community a little bit. Um, his name was Soul Soul Foods or San, Soul Food San Fran San Fran Soul Food Soul Food SF sorry Soul okay. Food SF uh, he's not on YouTube anymore so I can't remember his name but he's still he's still on Instagram uh, posting here and there Soul Food SF was a big vintage guy on on uh, YouTube and F is in Frank was also a website that I had stumbled upon which was a bunch of vintage gear and I was like wow this stuff is awesome and then um, it made sense that finding the, well, the only place to find it is like at flea markets and mm. the secondhand arena, if you're looking for the deals on it and that stuff really doesn't go down in value because it has a finite supply and it's like re-emerging re, re 90s trends. It's like, well, I'm going to start buying this stuff when I see it and kind of 401 closet investing in it and putting it away and start selling it. Yeah. So, so I would say, Go ahead. I would say Soul Food, uh, Soul Food SF, and um, F is in Frank would be the kind of guys that influenced me way back. And this was pre Macklemore thrift shop too. No, I remember, you did a Macklemore video too. I remember that one. That was pretty good. I love that uh, 401 closet. That was, that was yeah, explain genius. that. Explain 401 closet just so, so people have no idea what we're saying. <laughs> this is the term 401 closet. I was um, chatting with somebody on Instagram and. I was just saying like, oh yeah, you'll, I mean, it's a two, you buy that chair for two bucks, put it in your closet. It's going to be worth that money and it'll appreciate, or it will be worth 40 or 50 bucks uh, a year down the road. Just, it's a play on the word 401k. And it's like, you just put the stuff in the closet and it's just going to appreciate slowly or rapidly depending on a trend. And eventually you could pull it out and sell it, make some money off of it. That's genius. Have you uh, trademarked that phrase yet? 
<laughs> marks here. It's it's open for anybody to use and to enjoy. That's awesome. All right, so tell us tell us a little bit about so your operation. So I know you you've done so much. I mean, that's what's awesome about your life. I really think you should write a book. I, I seriously do. Like you've had so many experiences, but right now, okay, so right now you're back at home. So in what does your Texas home? Yes, in your Texas home. <laughs> so what does your operation look like? Are you eBay? Are you Amazon? I know you do Etsy, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. But are you pharmacist? right now or right is that now, no, kind I'm not of working i'm not working my wife really wants me to um work and resell on the side to supplement everything and to just basically me and her bearing down the hatches make as much money as we possibly can for the next couple of years and then figure out what we're gonna do uh, i guess for go back to florida and retire but uh, right now i'm not working pharmacy but i will probably be looking for either some sort of sales rep job here to supplement my income because I'm in a one bedroom, one bath. I'm very limited on space on what I can do resale wise. So I'm kind of at near maximum capacity without having a ton of stuff everywhere. I mean, you can see some vintage hats going on over here, but I have a little office uh, workspace behind me, but I can't, I'm on a second story. Like I can't do a ton here, mm. but I do have, some stuff that's listed or in storage in Florida at my mom's house. Cause all my family's in Florida. So I do have some stuff there. So that's like the Florida annex. And whenever I go back to Florida and we buy a property, I'll probably move a lot of that stuff into our house and have um, an eBay and Etsy going on there. But here it's just a lot of the closets are 401 closets and uh, yeah, it's, it's a tight space here. So percentage wise, what would you say if, you know, if you talk about Amazon, eBay and Etsy, what do, where do the percentages land? Um, I have about a hundred and 30 listings, maybe 150 listings on Etsy right now. I want to say I have 220 listings on eBay and just a handful of listings on Amazon because, uh, I just do one offs on Amazon. Okay. But you, you do, I mean, you consistently sell, right? I mean, I see you yeah. selling all the time. Yeah. Uh, Sold something on Amazon for five hundred and fifty dollars today, I think nice. five forty nine maybe. And it's it's vintage electronics. Is that right? Is that right? Oh, no, that one, was, okay. that one wasn't. All right. Well, we're not going to share that bolo. But. That, that one wasn't. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I mean your Walkmans, your your Sony stuff. Yeah, that I like doing that when I see it. But that one specifically wasn't. I wouldn't consider that one a vintage electronic. All right. So talk to us about Etsy a little bit, because that's the one I have no experience. Neither of you guys do Etsy, right? No. And I don't know. Yeah. I know a few people in the reselling community. Etsy is something that I feel like grew and then it just people stop talking about it. And there's yeah. some that still do it. So what are the so advantages way, of Etsy? Go ahead. What so are you going to say? Way back in the YouTube days, uh, I had never heard of Etsy either. And this one guy, Brett Ott, he's on Instagram. Uh, Brent Ott, sorry, not Brett. Brent Ott. He uh, is on Instagram as O unit productions. And he's kind of quiet, but he used to be a YouTube guy way back in the day. And he's the one who kind of got me into Etsy. And it, it's, it's good because the market there, it kind of commands a premium compared to eBay. Like it has a different vibe to it, more of a boutique kind of feel. So you can, you can ask a little bit more, I feel like. So and I've gotten mo more than what you would comp on eBay in the past. So. Nice. Cause when I think of Etsy, I think of, cause my wife gets stuff on Etsy all the time and it's like decorations for the house that somebody mm -hmm. like hand makes and 
you're doing clothes on on Etsy. Is that yeah, primarily it's almost synonymous with most people with clothes? Or sorry, with handmade yeah. handmade items or uh, print on demands. But the whole entire website is vintage or handmade goods hmm. is kind of what you can do on Etsy. Nice. And it's it, isn't it the lowest seller fees out of all the platforms? Yeah. It had, at one point, it was under five percent. I think they raised it to five percent, uh, and then their stock shot up. Once they raise their fees, but I, I want to say it's a uh, 5%. Okay. So would you recommend, so I, you know, I, I love nineties gear and I have a ton of nineties gear. It's all on eBay though. Would you recommend I shift it, some of it to Etsy or uh, what are your thoughts on that? You have, the, you have all the photographs stored somewhere or would you have to I do. I do. No, no, I have them. Mm, yeah. I would say it, it it has, it has its benefits. Like you're, you're saying some of its benefits, uh, they have some cool features. Like for instance, one of your feedback you can get, they can post a picture of themselves with the item huh. hmm. and it's a feedback picture. So it could be, I've had people like wearing a Jersey and posting a picture, which is just, it adds like a little, a touch of personality to it hmm. uh, that eBay doesn't have. And Etsy also archives everything ever. So I can go back to like my early sales from like 2014 and see all of my photos. Um, that listing is already created. So for instance, if I sold a vintage 49ers uh, hat in 2015 and I have like a similar one, instead of there, there's no sell one like this feature, but if I've sold that item in the past, I can copy that listing. It copies all the tags the description and I could just change the pictures and bam, like that listing is pretty much just a swap. Nice. Well, I'm super interested. I, Cause I, I really been wanting to jump into Etsy. I just don't want it, to put in the it's work. Not fast. So like it's not yeah. fast money. And I don't by any means, I'm not, I'm not wealthy off of Etsy. No, but I get that. It's fun and it's more boutique and it's, I enjoy it more so than like the turn and burn of Amazon or eBay. Okay. If I could just have like a 4,000 item Etsy store and be retired and just do that for fun, like that would be great. But you were saying that the, the eyes that are on Etsy aren't as much as on eBay then is that? No, if you look at, um, traffic, um, United States website, traffic, top 50 websites, I think eBay is like 12 or 13 and Etsy, I think is in like the forties or the thirties or the forties. So yeah, they're, there's the eyes. They're not there yet, uh, traffic-wise, but it's yeah. So it's still a very prominent website throughout the world. Even like I get a lot of sales that go overseas. Oh, so there is global. Okay. Oh no, yeah, time. yeah, yeah. All right. I just wonder. Absolutely. I just sold the Chargers logo seven from the nineties to some guy in New Zealand. Nice. So I was like, all right, good for you. <laughs> is that global shipping? Huh? Yeah, yeah. GSP. GSP. Oh yeah, GSP. Yeah. I love GSP. How do you feel about GSP? Are you, do you use GSP? Oh, it's good. Yeah. It, it's good to just have to ship off to Kentucky rather than filling out customs forms and having Japanese jackets <laughs> bounce back three times. So, okay. Hey, let's talk. Let's talk. I mean, we should, do we, we shared a lot about that in the podcast. Yeah. No, but I don't So what more. are you, what are your biggest takeaways? So in case you're new to the podcast, so college picker, uh, the college picker uh, found a Levi's. What, what what exactly was the jacket? I don't remember the exact. It's a type. type two blanket lined uh, Levi's jacket from like 1951 or 1952. I think is how it was dated based on the way that the the red label was. Okay, so you have you have like three or four videos on this one, right? Yeah, on your YouTube channel because it's given such a headache, and it 
I don't know. Well, when I found it, I had to make a video about finding it. And <sighs> that's when everyone said it was fake and it was a LVC. It was a retro. It wasn't an original one. And just, yeah. So how's it? Okay. So that's the thing I always talk about on social media, social media. You always feel whenever I post or do anything, there's always somebody that knows more than I do. Right. Or somebody says that's fake or somebody says that's wrong. So did oh, you- and there's a difference between knowing more and then people that just like don't know anything and they're just saying it's fake because they just don't want to see you succeed no. because that's what it more was. It's like people that really don't, it's someone I've never even heard of before. I've never seen their handle because that video has gotten traction. Okay. It's getting shown to people that don't know who I am and that I wouldn't make a video about a jacket saying that it's worth like $2,000. If I honestly didn't do my research and figure out this thing, is likely worth at least $2,000 and for them to just say, no, that's a, re- that's a retro. It was LBC. It's fake or whatever. Like, no, <laughs> I just remember when you had that fine, I was, I was blown away. That's, that's one of those that it should catch traction. Eventually you should get oh, contact. I'm convinced, I am convinced that is the highest clothing item sale on Etsy until I can be proven until wow. somebody shows me otherwise. Like, I don't think, a clothing item has been sold on Etsy for a higher amount than that. What did you end up getting for it? $5,722. Nice. And then when you broke down the fees though, so you have a whole video on breaking down the fees, so I don't want to go through it. What was your final like takeaway? Like, like 49 or something. Okay. That's yeah. still good. Wow, that's <laughs> like that. So and you should be like a spokesman for Etsy. Like that, you should do a commercial for them and say like, look at how much money you can make selling clothes on Etsy. And then Levi's would come after me looking <laughs> like I'm representing Levi's. Oh man. Oh, we could, I get, think we know where that's going. Yeah, right? we don't. <laughs> so, Hey, so what are your three takeaways from that whole ordeal with the Levi's jacket? Um, I mean, don't take your, well, everyone should know this. If you, if you can hold out on the first offer, like you don't need the money right now to pay rent or buy groceries for your family. Like don't take the first offer on something that you're not really sure about the market. Uh, especially if you have it listed high and you get a, a, a DM or a personal message on eBay saying like, Hey, will you consider like taking $3,000 instead of $5,000? Don't necessarily take that first offer. Cause that could be indicative of a reseller, you know? Mm-hmm. So if you can hold out on that first initial offer, which I already had plans to hold out because I listed it without measurements knowing that a reseller would buy it regardless of the measurements, but a buyer would want to know the measurements. Huh. So it kind of weeded out the resellers that's an right then and there. That's an interesting, uh, that's a new segment on our show. <laughs> tip of the week. Yeah. That's a good tip. Like, that, that's good. Yeah. And, and you'd only probably do that for like really, really high end stuff. Yeah, exactly. Saying. You're not going to do that for, for just like a pearl snapshot or something. It was just because this thing had such little, there were no comps. There was just actives. And then there was stuff on Rakuten. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Rakuten. It's like a Japanese global mm-hmm. uh, buy sell site. Hmm. Not exactly like eBay because it's more um, it's not bidding. It's just buy it now stuff. But it's uh, just a e commerce site in Japan. And there was a couple actives on Rakuten, and I had to kind of take into consideration condition and sizing and everything. And then being the only one on Etsy as well, kind of was in the equation. Cause there were a couple of them on eBay when I had listed it. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a super awesome thing. I mean that, that whole story, we followed it on the podcast for a while just because it was so incredible. So no, I was listening to, I'm on like episode 47 or 48 or 49 maybe. And, um, I keep hearing the updates on it. 
It's like so Orlando back flashback. Saying, Orlando keeps saying it was fifty two hundred. I'm like, no, it was fifty seven hundred. Oh, did I really? Oh, I totally messed up. It's okay. There's so many things I've messed up on the podcast. It's no, it's all good. So, all right, so what, talk to us real quick. Just shipping. All right, so what it, best practice for shipping when it's an expensive item like that going overseas? Yeah, as long as it's under $2,500, you can ship it as you would ship anything else. Once it goes over $2,500, you need to do a lot more customs, form information, uh, harmonizing codes. Um, What is harmonizing codes? It's customs jargon that... (laughs) Okay. It's like picking what the item exactly is. Okay, okay. They, They have... They they have so many classifications of everything, and you have. To, I went into like jackets, uh, soft textile jackets, and denim or cotton based or something. Like you have to just go into this d- tree of classification. And um, I would just skip USPS altogether and just go with FedEx and then call FedEx and and ask them to be your broker or your representative. And it's only $10 in order oh, wow. for them to, to, to do the uh, export data. And you, you basically get ported into FedEx's um, website, for a portal, and you can get a customer service rep on the phone to walk you through everything. Instead of trying to do it through the government um, exporting, you have to create more logins and exporting uh, website stuff from the government. And it just makes it a lot more complicated to try to do it yourself. That seems overwhelming. And you yeah, went through FedEx, that three uh, times. Yeah. FedEx, it, it, w- it would have been so much easier. Okay. Uh, oh, that's a huge tip. So now we know if it's something that big, go through FedEx, uh, save yourself some time and, and headache and, you know, don't, don't have it returned to you two or three times. That would be. Yeah. Or if, if you sell something that high, just like ask for help on Instagram, just throw mm-hmm. it up and tag people and be like, what should I do? Cause you, they might forget the information by then, but FedEx, they're more than willing to help. And they even walked me through the stuff on the phone and it kind of like helped me with how I, how I had to do it like a different way. And, but anyways, yeah, go with FedEx. That's cool. Hey, that's All right. Cute. So, um, I, I, I'm kind of want to bring it back to this idea of you're, you're a pharmacist. Like you're, you're, you had legalized drug dealer. You, you got, <laughs> I, I knew love, he was going to go there. Nice. Um, so, I mean, this is a profession. Like that's not, that's not like, you know, just a, a little job that you're, you know, deciding not to do. That's like a, a, a serious, well-respected profession. So what is it about reselling? That's like, you know what? I can put that on the side as the, the side job and I want to resell. Like, what is it that makes reselling that special just, to you? It's just the freedom of it. Just, it, you can incorporate traveling into to resale. You can turn it on, you can turn it off. You can flip the switches. You can go hard, you can go not so hard. And it's just a lot of flexibility and variety of it. And with an attention span of what I have, just being behind the counter doesn't do it for me. Mm. It really doesn't. That's why I'm going to try to, if I do something, if I do cave in and do something that my wife wants me to do, I'll probably do uh, sales, like either medical equipment or some sort of pharmaceutical sales, just because it will incorporate maybe traveling and networking, which would kind of maybe pique my interest for a little bit more so than being behind the counter. 
Yeah, and you love traveling. I mean, you you've been all over the place. What are some of the places you've been recently, and and what do you what do you do when you go there? Because I watch some of your Insta videos and and some of the things you're doing. But for our listeners who don't know, I just got back from the UK. I was cycling. I flew into Paris and cycled up um, up to the ferry to go to the UK, and then cycled a lot of the UK up up to Scotland, and then got the information about my dad being sick or not really sick. It's just like lifestyle choices yeah. and then having to go to surgery and then sold my bike within a couple of days of making that decision and then flew back home. But yeah, I like to bring that. I don't always bring the bike with me, but every couple of years I've done like a bike trip and uh, self-supported. So I'm like camping and um, sleeping outside, uh, not really knowing where I'm going to be and very open to the atmosphere. Yeah, no, that's amazing. Like I, I, I see people who do that kind of stuff. I have a, a bike. I have a like a nice road bike, specialized Alez that I ride occasionally. But like the idea of actually going and like just basically living on the road, not having a plan, riding on the bike, stopping in different places, camping. That's incredible. What are some of the the takeaways you have from that? Like, what are your, oh, your highlights? It it gives you. Um a different sense of traveling you become part of the atmosphere and everything like days seem to go longer. It's just a slower mm. pace. And I've heard this when people say that they walk across countries or they're, they do like big walking trips. They're like, yeah, it just goes even slower when you walk. Well, it goes slow when you ride, but I guess it goes even slower when you walk and you just, you smell the smells, you get to see things you wouldn't have stopped for in a car and you just kind of get, get to appreciate little things like caterpillars crossing the road or whatever. And just, it puts you in this vulnerability state where people come up to you and talk to you and they're like, invite you into their house. They'll give you some food or whatever. Like it, it, it opens up this conversation door that like never would have been there. And I don't know. It's, it's a different, you see a different side of humanity. So you've been to Dubai. Am I right? Did you go to Dubai? Yeah. I didn't bring the bike to Dubai, but okay. my wife had, I had um, a job in Dubai for about a year. So I visited there. I was there for, I think just one, one visa, which is like a little over 30 days. I think my visa expired, but then there was some, something on a forum saying that you can get away with an extra 10 days without having to renew the visa. So I stayed a little extra and then left. So, I mean, it's, you've been, okay. So yeah. And that's what I mean. You've been Dubai, Japan, UK, uh, uh Bangkok was Bangkok. That's that. right. About four months in Bangkok when she had a job, she, she had a job in oil. So they've moved her to like different places. Um, she was international. So she got to go work in these places. And um, I didn't get to go stay there as long as I had like, and we weren't married at the time either. So I'll just go visit her. When, uh, so when what's been working. your top, what's been your top three experience? I mean, I keep using the word three, but <laughs> what has been your top experience in the traveling? Cause you've been, you've been to a lot of places and some, yeah. some you've stayed, some you've biked through others. You've gone there, you know, for a few days, what has been your favorite and why? Uh, whenever you go to uh, out of the country for the first time, like that always has like a soft spot in your heart. So I went to Vietnam when I was like 15 years old. So I had a really, really good trip in Vietnam. I was with two of my really close friends at the time. Um, now we're kind of grown and one has a career and the other one has a family. So we don't talk as much, but well, we were, cl- we, we've been pretty close throughout most of our lives. And uh, I got to go with him. So that was a huge impact just because of the culture shock of a whole another food and language and everything. And I was there for like a month and a half, pretty much staying with the local family. So it was a different experience than like hotel travel. 
it was very, very humbling and cool to, to see and live without air conditioning and to do the ladle bath and just hmm. a different experience. Uh, so the Vietnam trip when I was super young, that one, uh, cycling Japan with Cody is definitely up there. That was such a fun trip. Uh, Japan was great. That's where I got engaged. Um, it's just a, an amazing culture, like 10 years in the future of a, of a people that are just so respectful. They still have integrity and mm. honor and don't think about stealing things. Like we would leave our bikes unlocked. Like you couldn't do that in a big city in the United wow. States. Like your bike would just get stolen. But over there, they still put a, a value on integrity and, and honor and things like that. So Japan for sure. And then Bangkok, I really liked Thailand too. Thailand was awesome. So are you saying, did you say Japan 10 years in the future? So you're saying it's, it's a whole different ballgame when you're over there. Yeah. With technology, I would say okay. in the future, technology wise, but maybe with their integrity, it was like the U S in the past, right? Okay. because that's, I've heard Japan now is like how U S was in like the fifties where people didn't have to worry about their kids, like playing after dark, or you didn't have to worry about people killing people hitchhiking like it was just it felt safe in the 50s that's what people had told me about japan and that's how i felt it was safe but yeah 10 years tech in the future so what does reselling look like when you're on these trips do you just like shut it off and say like i'm i'm enjoying this vacation i'm enjoying this journey i I always look for a thrift store if they're they're there or a flea market or a vintage shop or something like there were there's a bunch of vintage markets in uh, thailand but the prices are not uh, resellable. It's more of just like market. I'm just doing it kind of like for market research and personal entertainment to mm-hmm. go see kind of what's up. Like the vintage markets there, they'll have 90s tees and Iron Maiden stuff, Slayer shirts, like this crazy stuff that somehow got exported over there. Uh, maybe in Gaylords of, of our used clothing, like back in maybe the 90s and 80s that we just discarded and was like, we don't want this crap, but you mm-hmm. guys take it. I don't know exactly how they acquired all this amazing vintage stuff, but it's some of it's over there. Um, Japan actually does have a little bit of a secondhand thrifting culture. So you can um, go to the thrift stores or whatever over there. And I definitely try to pop in just to see what it's like. Even in Dubai. Yeah. There was a thrift store in Dubai too. I remember you going I can only imagine what that, those costs would be. <laughs> they were normal, right? The price, are the yeah, prices pretty normal was, wherever you go? It was a charity shop and their prices were normal, but it was like in a poorer part of town. Mm. And you would expect like Dubai, oh, it's like Gucci, Gucci, everything. But I think I found a Ferragamo, a Ferragamo jacket and two Robert Graham shirts. And I think that was it really. But, and a Game Boy Micro, but it was, yeah, the, it was just normal prices. Hmm. So do you have any issues at customs bringing this stuff back or does it just look like it's part of your clothing? Cause you're only yeah, doing like no, clothing. No customs issues. When I went to Thailand, I bought a bunch of Beijing Starbucks mugs I when that. I was at the, yeah, was at the airport. So I had probably, I don't know, 20 or 24 Beijing uh-huh. and China Starbucks mugs, the city mugs that sold. I, yeah, I've sold out of those ones at about Sixty-five to eighty dollars a piece, I think. Wow, nice. And that, if anything, would have triggered customs is that, but it's just, it's like twenty-five mugs. If you have twenty-five friends, like yeah. they don't, yeah. they don't. Mess. I'm going home. It's, it's not like Christmas it's presents. not like thousands and thousands of dollars worth of goods yeah. that um that could harm somebody or like agricultural or anything. 
Okay. I just was wondering if you had any fees or anything to pay, but that that's good to hear. Uh, and then do you put like your store and, and all of that on hold when you go on these these vacation trips? Or do you have somebody yeah. who comes and kind of helps with that? Depends on the trip. Uh, recently, because I was in the UK and Rachel was here, she was able to ship anything that was selling here. So she was just shipping. It was awesome that she was able to do it. I, um, I thank her for it. I don't think she was too happy about it. <laughs> so, all right. So a question. All right. Years ago, you had this video where you sold stuff at a Seminoles game. Do you remember that? Where you sold yeah. the Saturn jacket? So tell us what, what, I just want to know what led to that. Did you enjoy it? And would you ever do something like that again? See, at the time I enjoyed it. It was, it was a lot of fun, but my voice was so hoarse the next day. Like I couldn't talk cause I was like screaming but I don't think I would do it again. I don't know. Maybe I've just, uh, I've gotten too, too much too old. I'm like in my thirties now. Okay. So let's like, rewind it. Well, let's explain it. So a lot of people haven't seen this video. You should check it out on YouTube. The college. I think it's called How to hustle. I think is the name of the yeah, video. Yeah. I think you have two parts. Yeah. It's in two parts. And I literally just like went around with like a galaxy note Two filming. And, um, I had no idea of the video until the day of it was a game day. And I was like, I have all this vintage Seminole stuff. Let's like see if I could just go sell it to people. So but you literally was, put it on it was, and you walked out. It, it was rejection after rejection after rejection. That's the thing. Like I'd rather not do it because it's just, it was like 99% rejection. <laughs> I mean, you seriously had the clothing on and you're yeah. out there. And what, what did you just approach? Like, Hey, do you want a Seminoles jacket? I mean, I, how did it I work? Hold, I had a backpack on and some of the stuff was, um, it was hanging off of hangers and I said, Oh, like vintage Seminoles gear. Like I guess vintage wasn't that popular yet, but people go ape for it. Now the vintage Seminole stuff, there's a guy that does specifically vintage Seminole stuff. His name is Junkman Doug and he's in Florida. And he just, that's his whole hustle is huh. vintage Seminoles gear. He does pop-up shops around town. He gets insane, like top prices. He goes to bars in town and, and sets up and it brings people, into the bar. Cause they're like, Oh, I want to go to junk man, Doug's pop-up shop. And it brings people to a shop that are already in the bar and then everyone's drinking and makes an event out of it. And he just like sells, huh, huh. like he sells vintage seminal stuff. And the, the, the students are churning. So you're getting what? 10,000, 15,000 new Seminoles fans every single year. That's genius. And no returns, right? I mean, yeah. That, 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 and, that, yeah. And he sells it in person is no returns. And you, I remember you sold that satin jacket for a hundred bucks, right? You had one that you paid five for. Oh yeah. It was a cool jacket though. I mean, it was nice. I think, I think I've sold three of those since then. Uh, three, three satin jackets. Now how's the market on that? I find that satin jackets, depending on the team, they do well. Do you think it's still as strong as it was? It depends on the team, depends on the, the market of, uh, and also the location. If, if it's in Miami and, it's hot all the time. It's going to be a harder sell just because your population of your fans are mostly in like a warmer climate. Not everybody, of course, there's going to be some Miami fans that live up North, but it just depends on the team. Like how die hard are those, those fans for, for those kind of jackets? Like, is it a saturated market? I've had one that's uh, a Pittsburgh pirates MLB satin jacket that I, I don't think I have sold it. Maybe it's sold. I'd have to check my Etsy, but I, I, it might've been in my store for three years before it sold. I, I don't know. Like just certain ones won't. All right. So, Hey, talk to me about that. So, you know, there's different theories about reselling. There's some people that are like, you should 
have something only for so long in your store and then you just donate it. Now, you are I mean, you more of like, hey, I'm going to let it sit. It could be a decade. That's the, that's the 401 closet theory. It's if that item is no longer produced and will has that really it, it I mean, it has its inherent value of being something from an era of the satin jackets is kind of like a holy grail of, of a team's. Um, if you could support a team, you're going to like buy their vintage jacket for, for having the best gear in, in the stands or whatever, or at the tailgate like, or a Fanimation jacket or something, something crazy. It's like the top of what you can get. So I'm not okay. I'm not, I'm not afraid to put it in the closet for two, three years and let it sit. Um, perfect example is this Zelda shirt I posted on oh, Instagram. Yeah. I don't know if you guys saw it. I, I just sold it for $125, nice. but it was a 1999 shirt. Etsy only is allowed vintage considering it has to be previous 20, uh, 20 years old to be considered vintage by okay. Etsy standard. So that was in my closet for two years waiting for it to become vintage. Oh, wow. I bought it. It wasn't 20 years old. I couldn't put it on Etsy. I didn't want to put it on eBay. I just checked it in the 401, 401 closet, pulled it out. It sold in three days for $125. Really? Wow. So to you, it's that much worth it for like the high end vintage to go Etsy as opposed to eBay. I mean, I could have, I might've been able to get 125 on eBay too, but I, I just tend to go. I, I don't know. I'm just like trained Etsy <laughs> to go vintage, vintage with Etsy now. Nice. That's awesome. And and you also do, besides just clothing, you also do a lot of electronic stuff. Cause I've, I've, I've seen you do like some repair things where you'll fix things that are broken. Uh, in fact, I know Orlando sent you a, uh, a Vitamix knowing you'd fix it. Yeah. So, so you fix like mechanical stuff, but like you fix like computers and that kind of stuff too, right? Yeah, I'll do um, computer repairs depending how crazy the thing is. Like water damage and when it gets into like micro soldering, I don't really have the knowledge or the tools in order to do that. But just simple like the motorcycles, like most parts are just bolt on, bolt off, plug it in, plug it out. Parts are meant to fail. Well, certain parts are meant to fail over time or and then just be replaced if it's a good design. And then if they're not a good design, then you have to replace the entire thing. Now, the tricky thing with computers, and you shared this, is data, right? In the sense that people don't remove their data, right? I'm so most surprised. Of the time. Yeah, I couldn't tell you how many passwords and pictures and even social security guards and driver's license wow. and credit cards and debit cards, full PayPal passwords and everything, Facebook, whatever, clean pictures, dirty pictures. I've seen it all on people's computers that they didn't wipe their data. They did not do a factory restore before selling their computer. Can't believe it. I, you like, you just shake, you shake your head at it. That's great. So do you, do you purchase computers in order to like fix them? Like, are you looking for them? Do you do mostly like Craigslist or what about like thrift stores? Like what's your model for picking so up those and fixing those thrift stores? You're not really going to find a modern enough computer it's going to be the trickle down of a lot of the older electronics. Maybe not in California, maybe not in San Diego. In San Diego, you'll be able to find some nice Bose stuff or maybe some MacBook Pros or something. Sometimes. I don't know. But usually, yeah, your computers and thrift stores are normally 99% of the time going to be trash. So I go to pawn shops um, or just check on like OfferUp or Facebook Marketplace or Craigslist. 
try to find some deals. And then recently, probably about the last six months, rather than posting them on eBay or Amazon, because you used to be able to sell Apple products on Amazon, but they nixed that. Mm. That was a big blow because I had a lot invested in the Magic Mouse. That was a good oh, bolo I that I would I would buy the Magic Mouse. Um, it was an eBay to Amazon flip. I would buy it off of eBay for like 20, 30 bucks. And I would sell them for like 79 to 99 on Amazon. And then I had like 40, I went nuts. I bought like 45 of them at one point, sent them in and then Apple brought the ax down and now I'm stuck with like 45 magic mouses um, that I have left over in stock. Yeah, hopefully they'll go over time on eBay, right? Amazon drops the hammer whenever they want. Like they don't care. Anyways, okay. So tell me, I want to know about the pawn shop hustle because that that is the one thing I've never done. Like I always feel that if I go into- It's intimidating. It is. And I always feel like if I'm going to go into a pawn store, number one, I'm even like concerned about taking my phone out, right? Or that they already know a lot more than I do and I'm going to get hustled no matter what. Because you know, you watch- Pawn Stars on the History Channel, and you always know those people get hustled every single time. We wanted to take a quick moment to thank our sponsors for this episode. I mean, they're providing a service to the people. The people are providing a service to them, and then they're providing the service to the customers. Everyone is, it's in the circle of pawn. So the people that are pawning the items, they need the cash same day. Uh, maybe they don't have the knowledge or the shipping materials, the postal scale or the patience to sell anything on eBay, or they just are, I <laughs> think that eBay is a scam. I don't know, whatever reason they go to the pawn shop. So the pawn shop, depending on, they actually, depending on the pawn shop, but they have a registrar of the people that are like, Oh, that's a good lender. Like we can give him a little bit more if he's going to pawn that thing. Cause mm-hmm. he has a good history with us. Like they have basically like huh. history of, people pawning things, paying it off, um, or not paying it off or getting like iCloud locked phones or whatever. Like they, they can like red flag people to like not loan them money. So they, they're providing this service to the people. Cause a lot of them, people pawn things for a loan, like a short term loan, mm-hmm. you give them your, your MacBook pro, maybe it would be worth $800 on eBay. Pawn shop gives you 400, but you say you're going to pay it back. And then you eventually like pay them back a total of like $500. And if you don't, then they keep the item and then whatever payments you've made towards it. So they get, they they hedge their risk accordingly. Mm -hmm. Um, But each item is purchased a different way. Maybe it was pawn, maybe it has layaway into it. And based on the item, you can work out deals and also based on the pawn shop and what rapport you've developed. And they don't always know everything about everything just like anywhere. Mm-hmm. Like you would think eBay, you wouldn't be able to find deals on eBay. You find great deals on eBay. Ah, it's true. So do you, so what does the, the purchasing side of it look like though? So when you're walking in to buy things, how often do you find deals in a pawn shop where you could say, Hey, I'm going to be able to turn this around and make some money. So, uh, it's hit or miss. Just like I went to what I go to two today and I didn't buy anything. I was just cruising, just saying hi to the workers and, just look and see if they had any deals. I took, I sometimes I'll take a couple pictures of computers. If I don't feel like looking them up in the store, I'll take a picture of the serial number and I'll go home. I'll make sure see if it has warranty. Um, or if I'm in a hurry and don't want to sit there too long. But I usually, if I really tried, I could, I could pull an item out of every store. I would say to make, 
I, I try to shoot for at least like a $50 profit mm. depending on the item. But I, I would say you could pull an item out, pull them out, out of every store. If your threshold is like a $20 profit, like that'd be really easy. But mm. I try to like kind of do more of like at least like a $50 to thousand dollar depending on yeah. the item all right well maybe we need to go to a pawn store i got really yeah. lucky with a bike recently and oh, I, yeah? I bought it for one, 170 and sold it for 1325 oh. i think wow what was it it's a brompton bolo brompton nice <laughs> bolo brompton so but a, you, you know a lot about bikes so it was easy to spot you would think i do but i don't know a lot i know a little about bikes i know enough to be dangerous in an underpriced brompton in a pawn shop mm. and it was priced at $250 and I knew that I knew what it was just because the Bromptons have a very distinct design. It's a folding bicycle and it folds into thirds rather than yeah. into uh, whatever have or whatever the other folding bicycles do. It's made in the UK and there's not a lot of them. So it's just, they hold their value. They don't depreciate that much. The one I found was a 2016. I think it retailed for 1600. And I sold it three years later for thirteen twenty five. So wow. it only went down whatever thirty three hundred dollars in MSRP value. Wow. So, and that was a local flip. No, it was, I ended up selling it on eBay. Wow. So how how did that shipping go? You could, you were able to fold it, and it wasn't too bad. Or yeah, I, it, it folds into thirds, so it actually is small enough to put in the overhead bin on an airplane. The wow. way that it's designed, oh, wow. you can carry nice. you can carry them on airplanes. Yeah. And I had pre-packed it because I knew it was going to sell. As soon as I put it up, I got messages, offers, um, people saying that they really have been looking for a Brompton forever. Will you take this much? Um, and I had probably like 20-something watchers on it within a week or two. And I knew it was going to sell while I was overseas. And I boxed it up for my mom to just slap a label on it and send it on its way. I think it was maybe only 40 bucks, something like that, to ship from Florida to Texas. Huh. So you're saying it sold, it was stored in Florida and your family shipped it from Florida while you were in, in Texas? While I was in uh, the UK. Sorry. Oh, while you're in the UK. Yeah, now, do you still have UK, stuff? My mom shipped it. And so similar to that, you still have stuff stored in Florida that if it sells, your family will ship it out for you? Oh yeah. My mom's great about that. Oh, that's She's, awesome. She, yeah. It's in, the, I have two shelves and um an etsy closet and she'll pull something and ship it she's she's really good about it she's like it gives me something to do all right i i don't pay her but i like help her indirectly like she total she totaled her car and um she doesn't like she said my parents are separated my mom doesn't have like the best negotiating skills so she went to like a car dealership like i don't know she's a grandma she doesn't know how to like go buy a car get a deal not get ripped off by a dealer she doesn't know if they're telling them bunch of crap or if they're telling her the truth she just stressed out the whole situation running a binary car giving it to her like i pay her back in different ways and she's been helping me for years so it's like what is what is this like one gesture to like all the hundreds of gestures of that that you've helped me with yeah and that that seems to be something that's pretty common in the reselling community is it really does seem like it takes a a community right like there are some people who are are doing it 100 on their own uh, but it seems like having a support system, whether it's spouse or other family members um, or just friends or somebody else around you seems to be pretty important. Would you say that's been for you? Absolutely. The the rally roots set up is I, I really like they have that. They have a team, they have their family involved. They have Cali, like it's a husband and wife. Like there's so much support going on in that, 
in that warehouse. Like it's just, it is like the perfect storm mm. of success and progression for everybody. Like it's awesome. Nice. All right. So I had a question about your journey of being debt free. So tell us a little bit what got you started. Congratulations, yeah. by the way. Congrats. You should have a little dance party. That's what I think. So, so t- <laughs> tell us what, if I don't know if you want to share what got you into debt. And then what, what got me into debt? Yeah. Then uh, what, college got me into debt. No, no, I get that. I get that. And then yeah. what made you, like, what brought you to a place that I'm, I'm going to pay this off? And then what, what did it take? So the debt, I was all student all student loans and then student loan interest. And I had taken out loans for, I think like five, four or five years of school. And it totaled 66, no, 60, I think 60 or 60 or 61,000 in loans. But I was, I had it on auto minimum payment, you know, whenever you get out of school, you get them deferred for like six months, then you can auto pay minimum payment. So I did that. And then I looked whatever, I don't know if it was a Dave Ram, like I didn't know who Dave Ramsey was. And then somebody introduced me to him. I think maybe it was me watching that. And I, it triggered me to like go in, log in and be like, I borrowed 60, but I owe 66. Like, how does that make sense? Mm. And I was like, well, this is terrible. I don't want to, I've already paid essentially over $10,000 in interest. Like, I don't want this to just keep, I don't know, keep going and going. I just want to like be done with it and be debt free and be no, be slave to no lender or anything like that. And just, just focus, like get on it. And I did probably the top three things. You like the number three, right? So (laughs) the top three things I did was I made a uh, public accountability like statement on YouTube. So I was like, ew, I have all this debt. I want to get rid of it. Um, this is my plan. Like I'm going to resell, I'm going to do pharmacy. I'm going to like maximize my income while minimizing my expenses and just like pretty much chuck everything at it instead of like, I'll, I'll, I'll see people that I went to school with, like on Facebook buying new cars and they probably have car payments instead of going to buy a new car. I'm going to just go after my student loans. Cause I want to say the, the uh, interest average was probably five percent mm-hmm. somewhere in the fours somewhere in the six so i think it was maybe like five five point four average something like that which isn't terrible but from having no debt and all throughout school well thinking i had no debt all throughout school and then seeing what the final number is at the end it was just like uh i have the ability to to pay it so i'm just gonna to go forward and just do it it's like um having debt is like an investment portfolio against you where that portfolio just keeps taking money away from you. So I wanted to, to get that portfolio gone. If that makes sense. I don't know if that, it's a weird way to look at it, but no, no, we get it. That's good. And how long did it take you? Like how, cause you went hard to get rid of it. So what was the total investment of time and energy? Uh, I want to say I started in July of 20, 17 is when I made that first YouTube video. So the YouTube accountability was number one. And then number two was my consistency of posting. So I made a habit of posting every two weeks for the most part, posting every two weeks, I fell out of it here and there. But so that consistency like helped me with my focusing. It was like the accountability. And then it was like the consistency of that. 
Um, and then my goal was to pay off within 12 months, which I did not, but I did pay it the following October. So little over 12. So I think it was like whatever, July, August, September, October, a little couple months after uh, the goal. Nice. That's amazing. Yeah, that's you awesome. paid off 60 something thousand dollars in what? 15 months? No, more than that. Yeah, 14 or yeah. Thir- 14 or 15 months, something like that. That's amazing. And you still like lived, lived. your life. Yeah. <laughs> like you still yeah, ate well, three meals that, a day. That, that, that brings me to number 3 was okay. hyper hyper frugality. So at one point I was like working a pharmacy contract in California for it was like a two and a half week gig, but I was it was great pay. Like I, it was a great reason to go to California. It was a great gig to travel. I've never been to that part of Northern California. It was like a little outside of Sacramento. And I want to say it was totaling like per diem and mileage. It was like 109 bucks an hour. So I was like, this is, this is an opportunity. I like, I don't want to pass up to just make a bunch of money and chuck it at the debt. So I was living in my van rather than like going to get a hotel. I was showering at like anytime fitness rather than getting a hotel and showering. So like that type of like hyper, hyper frugality mindset that spouses and girlfriends would not be on board with, like that definitely helped to pay it off a little bit faster. Yeah, so that's you amazing. Next, I'm just saying, usually the, you know, Dave Ramsey's plan is like put money on um, in envelopes, like, you know, attack your first debt. You know, college pickers way is live in a van Shower at a at, at a gym. Shower like, at any time fitness. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah. That, no, but it's genius. Like, if you want to make it happen, I mean, oh, I, you you got to s- adapt it to your life to your lifestyle. Yeah. Like everyone, like what does he say? The 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 math got you in debt in the first place. Like mm-hmm. the math didn't really get me in debt. It was the schooling that got me in debt. So I was I was uh, motivated enough to pay off the highest interest rate first, even if it was not the lowest balance. Because it's right. like he, he likes to do the snowball, right? Mm-hmm. right. No, the only reason I say that I I had half of you had I had about thirty three k that I paid off, but it took three years. And had I done hyper frugality, it's gonna be the new word of the. Yeah, podcast. but you got a family. I didn't like. Yeah, I, I know. I get it. No, I get, and that you're right. You're right. You have to adapt to your lifestyle. I mean, it's that's very true. And your spouse has to be on board too. I don't know if at that time. I would have been able to say, Hey, we're going to live in a van <laughs> or, you know, yeah, we weren't married at the time yeah. she was working. I was working. Okay. We were long distance dating. So it was still, it was very impressive. Very impressive. It, it worked for us at the time. And yeah, if I told her I was going to do that now, she would cut my head off. <laughs> no, but I mean, I just think the idea of to make, to pay over $66,000 off in a year. I mean, that's a, that's a great salary. People live off way less than that. Right. And so you were taking that, amount of money and living with, you know, in a van for, for times and showering, that just says something. The fact that you can have enough money to live a really comfortable life and say, you know what, I'm going to choose for a moment not to live the, the comfortable life in order to have that comfortable life later. Kind of the, you know, Dave Ramsey idea. But I, do you think that that's kind of part of what makes you also a reseller? Cause it seems like part of the reseller model too, is like being willing to, to hustle really hard, to make sacrifices, um, do you think there's a connection of overlap there or um, what is it that uh, made you able to do that? The resell, the reselling definitely helps because it's just, it's, it, it's already immune to me to shopping. It's already immune to me to mm. like new electronics to the newest, latest and greatest phone. Like I've already become immune to that stuff. 
but it, it more goes back to the traveling on the bicycle because sleeping in a van is actually an upgrade from sleeping on a bicycle. So the, the van is a very safe four-star hotel compared to uh, a Cannondale and a tent. Okay, what's been the craziest place you slept? Because I got to tell you, I I am so, I'm such a first worlder, I guess. Like, I can't sleep unless it's in my own bed. Like, I even, I even struggle in a hotel bed. Like, I just can't handle it. And I watch your videos. And I, I remember one, I went camping four years ago and I slept in a tent. It was one of the most miserable experiences I ever had. Was it car camping or was it like backpacking in the woods? It was one night in a in a wealthy individual's estate to go paintball the next day. I mean, it wasn't that's not camping. No, but it was in a tent. I mean, I got to tell you, I so that's like backyard camping. Yeah, that's pretty much what it was. But okay, it was one of the worst, worst sleeping experiences I've ever had. Now, I, the only reason I say that is because you know there's different degrees of <laughs> frugality, I guess. But my question to you, Eric, what has been the the I would say. Weirdest place you place felt like, weirdest or the most unsafe place like you just worried about yourself worried like uh worried or you you know you kind of didn't want to close your eyes i didn't sleep well in the uk uh i don't understand really why i never fig- oh actually i did figure it out why my sleeping bag was too hot i couldn't <laughs> sleep well because my sleeping bag was too hot I would wake up sweating. Uh, I needed to get like a lighter sleeping bag. And I just, instead of buying a lighter sleeping bag, I just suffered. Mm. So until we kept going, cause we were going North. I was like, Oh, my sleeping bag. Eventually we're going to hit that point of neutrality where it's just going to feel great. Well, I've never ended up really hitting that point. Oh. A, a couple nights, maybe the breezing, the breezes and, um, a cold, cold snap maybe came through and was, was chilly, but yeah, just, I wasn't scared, but it just, it was too hot. Didn't sleep. Mm. Um, we slept in graveyards, uh, sometimes because the churches over there are so old from the, uh, early 1100 of what is it? 1100s. Is that 1100? Yeah. 1100. You guys are history guys. (laughs) 1100s, uh, to the 1500s, those churches from like, the old Catholic switching into the church of England era, mm-hmm. uh, they buried a lot of their members on site. And like, there was all these headstones we would sleep by. <laughs> they were quiet though. They were quiet. That's good. Yeah. They made good, uh, camping neighbors. So I get it. I, I don't know. That's, I just couldn't do it. I yeah. just, I just couldn't do it, but that's, but maybe I need to go on a road trip with Eric. That would make for an interesting the thing is, is it, it takes usually like a week or two for your body to adjust. You, you okay. have to just, you have to know, like our bodies are designed so incredibly well that we can adjust to a lot of things that we don't think we can, but huh. we can. Mm. Ah, that's good. I've seen, and I've seen that because each of your trips, like even the food you eat. So what, what were, <laughs> I know we're keep, we're going back to traveling and I want to go back to reselling, but I'm really intrigued. So what, what did food look like on these trips? I mean, I saw it on your Insta, but I wanted the listeners to hear. So you were like dining, like this wasn't like a foodie tour, right? Uh, the UK, the UK was less foodie, I would say than Japan, Japan. We would usually eat uh, one meal would be at like a diner or one of their Japanese fast food restaurants. Um, usually one meal would be prepared just like grocery foods. And then um, breakfast would be just like oats or something quick in the morning. 
Um, but in the UK, no, it was like grocery stores and just like junk food, you donuts some, and you some Doritos, Vegemite, baguettes, like terrible, terrible eating in the UK for us. Hey, but when you're riding uh, your bike, you're good, you know? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I'm turning the calories. I'm just losing muscle mass from, <laughs> from eating junk food and cycling, but, and I just feel bad, like eating all the sugar and stuff, but yeah, it doesn't put on, it doesn't put on much of the weight. That's awesome. All right. So let's get back to reselling a little bit. So it's kind of weird that, you know, we're, I feel kind of weird interviewing you right now. It's been seven years and I feel like there was like this golden time of reselling, probably I would say 2014, 2015 with like Amazon FBA, like you could pretty much sell anything. eBay wasn't as saturated. That's my thoughts. It wasn't as saturated. And now we're in a place and, you know, people, some people are saying like, oh, I'm so done with clothing. I'm done with eBay. Some people are saying like Amazon, like it's not worth it anymore. What are your thoughts overall, like on the current state of reselling? What I want to hear the college picker analysis. If, if, you're, if it's not worth it to you, then go back to working a job or, or a nine to five or something. You're tri- like, you have to figure out stuff that's going to be falling in the cracks and exploit the heck out of it while you can. There's still opportunities. It's just not nearly, I don't think as plentiful as it was like the Ninja Turtles of 2015. I think that was one of the hardest Q4s of uh, my life was just anything Ninja Turtles. You could go to Walmart target when that, when they did the live action film, uh, were, were you guys doing Amazon FBA? I was, I remember yeah. those days. I remember oh, watching yeah. you guys. It was and- like, you, everything was an unre- unrestricted, no restrictions. And it's just like scan anything Ninja Turtles. And then you sell it for like four to like maybe 10 times your money at Q4. I don't know the Ninja Turtle golden era, but it's, it's who's going to work the hardest. Who's going to study the hardest to find the brands and who's going to drive the farthest to find the stuff. Like, would you say it takes just as much work now as back then, or it takes a lot more work now to to be, let's say if you want to go full time, maybe, maybe the information's easier to attain. You can become five years experience like what pre YouTube you could maybe get five years of experience within like, I don't know, like six months to a year, but it would take so much longer before I was flipping before smartphones. Like I was going to Google without a smartphone. I learned the hard way to, to buy stuff, bad buys. Um, but maybe the competition kind of offsets that you, you get that greater, greater numbers of people in the the markets, just more of a saturated place because everyone has the information, but it's whoever's going to work the hardest. So the question is, and we had our last episode, uh, sharing responsibly, and we had discussed the idea that, you know, social media has played a part. Do you believe, I mean, you do, you're a social media guy. I mean, you've been making these videos for a while. Do you believe that social media has had more of an adverse effect on reselling or it, it's allowed more opportunity for people? Where, where do you lean on that? uh that well like social media can can also launch a trend that's going to make like the pie face you know like if someone's going to go make two thousand dollars on one oh, the pie, pie face pie, pie face loop around their city it's via from social media so that wouldn't have gone as viral and they wouldn't have been the demand without it so it just it creates like a different type of opportunity. Like vintage stuff might be more popular because people are wearing it 
and po- posting it on social media. Um, but for those very easily found items that are at Walmart and targets and th- those opportunities, I don't think it's as easy to, to find. No, we agree. I mean, that's where we landed. We were very big on one-offs are okay. But when you start doing the retail arbitrage sharing, it, it definitely, it gets super intense. Yeah, it, it depends on the, on the the supply, where the supplies of those items are. And if you've, tr- if you've tracked certain items and you know that this is what the price they were here and then this person shared it to this audience and then this is where the price went here. I mean, you could make a correlation of an argument with enough of those cases to say that. Uh, Guitar Hero, the original Guitar Heroes are no longer produced. So I feel comfortable sharing the information to flip those on Amazon FBA. Mm. Uh, I don't think it's necessarily tanked at the market, but people are still making money selling Guitar Hero stuff. It's, It's perfectly fine to share or provide that information. Okay. Oh, cool. Thank you for that. Um, so you obviously have, you know, crazy stories. Any, any of our listeners that, that aren't following you need to go follow you so they can watch all of the information that you have to give on top of that, the, the fun vacation stuff that you're doing. And there, to me, they seem less like a vacations and more of like journeys that you go on. But, um, so definitely follow, but coming from the education field, I, I have the opportunity uh, to talk to young people. And one of the things I like to do is always try and impart wisdom on their life. So I find like one of my greatest joys is like trying to have one or two things that I can make my students believe to be like a truth about life. So if you had the opportunity to kind of share like advice to somebody and it doesn't have to be a kid, it could just be like life advice. What's the thing you would say to somebody? <laughs> Before walking in a store and paying retail, check eBay, Amazon, Craigslist, Facebook Marketplace, OfferUp, Letgo, local pawn shops. Uh, what after that? Then you could do slick deals. Like there's so many ways to not pay retail. Just do not waste your hard-earned dollars. Especially if you're young, you're probably getting paid minimum wage at a fast food joint or mowing lawns. Do not waste your hard-earned dollars paying for retail for stuff. Find a way to to get it for cheaper. And then understanding depreciation. Things, certain things depreciate more than others. Certain things have already depreciated. Usually buying it secondhand can mitigate that depreciation so you don't get hit with it. And if you learn how to sell it, you make your money back in the future. Ah, That's great. I like that. Don't never pay retail. No, I agree. Yeah, you can sum it up as don't pay retail. I love how you said, though, that reselling numbs you to ever buying anything that, you know, is, is the newest thing yeah. out there or retail it helps get over some of that consumerism for sure. Yeah. It, I don't know if I was born like that or if it was from retail, uh, recent retail numbness from reselling. Uh, I very rarely buy anything new and expensive. Um, it's like a, a $50 Filson backpack from OfferUp is like a rarity for me. Mm-hmm. That that I just recently bought that was brand new, 50 bucks. It's nice. But I, I could sell it back in like five years for what I paid for it. So I have that. I like calculated my risk into my backpack before I bought it. But I rarely, rarely buy um, things brand new. I think the, my drone is the last thing that I did. And that was $1,000, which 
still hurts to think about, but it got a lot of good shots for Japan. So nice. Yeah. Mike still hasn't bought his drone that still got him got started it, yeah. reselling. The whole reason he started reselling was to buy a drone last summer. Yeah, I remember you mentioned that. He, <laughs> he still hasn't bought it. it. Yeah. I mean, there, it depends what you're going to use it for, but it's, it's like a very, I don't know. Yeah novelty kind of thing it is i had access to one so i didn't need one i just wanted one personally now i don't have access to it anymore um and so i do some videography so i'm like I oh, should oh get yeah one, you do wedding stuff so yeah. yeah you need that wedding shot then you can probably figure out a way to write it off yeah. as a business expense and have, have essentially it would pay for itself exactly in the wedding client and yeah. wedding photography yeah so that's the way to do it rather than going out and buying a drone playing with it for christmas and yeah. then shoving it in the closet yeah yeah exactly so let's talk about education for a little bit here. So there's, you know, in the reselling community, right? There's, I would say there's, there's an adversity towards education, right? And the main reason is one, well, there's two. One is it's a waste of time, right? Because you take some gen ed classes and you're like, why would I take this class? The other one is the student loan that ends up happening as a result yeah. of that. What are, what are your thoughts on education? I mean, you, you paid off over $60,000, but it's paying off for you right now as a pharmacy. What's your exact title? Yeah. Pharmacy tech? Pharmacist. Um, Pharmacist. Sorry. By, I have the opportunity to exercise my degree if I want to, or the, the option to. Um, it's a backup plan. If I were to, I don't know, run out of money, I could go work and if I really had to go get a good job with good insurance and benefits and make a good salary and live that, that normal life, like I could, I really, I, it's like, it's insurance. Essentially it was expensive insurance that I bought, which wasn't necessarily a bad thing. And I, I wouldn't have traded it for anything because I made a lot of good friends in school. I feel like you, you meet a lot of uh, lifelong friends, especially when you're in a professional school or, um, maybe even like an MBA program. I'm sure a lot of people struggle together and, and just that camaraderie from school. It's probably not as much as the military, but you still, it's like your comrades. It's like your buddies. Um, I'm I still keep in contact with a lot of them. And if, if you are planning on going to school, like do research on the end goal, like have an angle in mind of what kind of job, you can actually get with that degree and maybe lean more towards a professional degree. Uh, technicians like x-ray technicians, um, dentists, dental hygienists, things where once you get out, like you're a very marketable specific uh, niche that you're going into mm. or a trade job, like a trade school. I would say, I think I, I have a theory that everyone's getting college educated. Nobody's going to trade school. So the plumbers, the electricians, are going to be the ones making six figures running their own business in the yeah. future because they're going to be the ones that are not uh, are are very rare while everyone else is it's saturated with a degree but mm -hmm. nobody knows how to weld anything yeah okay that leads me to another question though so there's kind of two schools of thought there's one like follow your passion you should only follow your passion the other one is you should follow what makes you money even if it's not your passion right and mike and i go back and forth oh. on this a little bit where do you land on that I, I would, I would say you could go to school and it's the insurance and safety of that. And you could follow your passion, like while you're in school and have, have it on the side. Like if you want to start a blog or start a YouTube channel, you can do it while you're in school. I, it, there's no problem with that. Uh, you can follow your passion in a blog. You could follow it in a YouTube channel. You could follow it in creating an Instagram. You could follow it in any form of social media. You could follow it 
like if you have a passion for gardening, you you could do it while you're working as a form of stress relief. Uh, I don't think necessarily you, you could have to be so polarizing. I don't think you could hybridize it. Okay. I like that. Yeah. No, it's good because I find it right now. I think we're in a state that's very polarizing. Like you can't do both. And I think Mike and I very much argue. I, I kind of do do both. Like I don't resell like gung ho. I'm making six figures reselling. Like I resell. It gets me really good stuff, really cheap. I help people on Instagram by passing them deals of a lot of the stuff I've been finding lately. And it cuts my costs. I can go work and make really good money too. I can resell and make, I can kick it up the notch with reselling and make good money and kind of balance it depending on like what we really want to do. Like right now, my wife just wants me to make as much money as fast as possible without having stuff in the house. So guess what? That means I have to go figure out how to do some sort of degree job, but that's not going to be like that forever because I have a skill that I can fall back on. That's non healthcare. Okay. So what, okay. So this is the thing we talk about a lot. What holds you back? Cause you know, your stuff. So if you wanted to, I believe you could get a warehouse and you could build and you can scale. So what is, what holds you back from doing that? I see. I wouldn't want a warehouse. Okay. <laughs> All, right. All right. And you wouldn't, um, and why, why is that? just the responsibility of having it, the, the logistics of running employees. Like I like seeing it from a distance. Like I like seeing what the rally roots do, but they have such an awesome relationship with their employees and their family that it just works for them to, to really scale like that. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. If, if, you don't want a 10 X. I'm too scared to see the real estate stuff scares me. Like I'm renting right now here because I'm so everyone says like, don't buy or at a peak, but it's, it's, I don't know. It's the real purchasing. The real estate is kind of like my mental block right now. Like if I had a house with a dedicated workspace in a garage and in storage shelves, um, it definitely could help with the scalability, but the, the whole real estate thing is kind of definitely a, a mental block with me. That's something I've never purchased real estate. So it's scary to get in. The one thing like I have never <laughs> flipped before to get in at like the worst time would be, yeah. it would, would be yeah, terrible. Okay. No, I appreciate you being candid and honest about that because I, that's a question that I still have. I, I, I kind of, I mean, I have my, my, my family and so on that I take care of too, but I choose not to scale because I think of what I would have to sacrifice to scale. I mean, I think it would be major sacrifice to scale. I'm a, I already, I hustle a lot. It's not like I, you know, some days I, I hustle more than others, but you're right. I mean, it, it takes, it would take a lot. So, all right. My storage facility most more than anything I'd say would be a bottleneck right now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so I, speaking of that, what, what is the future for the college picker look like? Like what, do, what do you think you're, you're planning as far as reselling YouTube, social media? Like what, what are your plans the next say five years? Um, well, I would love to have a child. I don't know if that really fits much. And I don't know how, all how right. we, this is congratulations, a yeah. pre congratulations. Yeah. This sure is yeah. Awesome. a first on Pierce podcast. Somebody announcing that they want a child. <laughs> I would love to have a child. Um, I don't know how much of an effect. Well, I know it will have a huge effect on the whole aspect of reselling from sourcing to shipping to everything. But I would just, I'm just going to continue to create content and answer people's questions in the direct messages on Instagram. Okay. Great. Yeah. Just create content. I, I might start a blog one day to, 
kind of throw up some ideas to throw like vomit my ideas onto uh, Google search engines rather than vomiting them into YouTube. So, mm. okay. So, any any trips planned in the future? Any big trips, or is that kind of uh, for now? Rachel said something about Greece. I don't wow. know if that's going to happen. Our honeymoon was supposed to be in France, but that got canceled um, because of a little bit because of the Patagonia stuff, and then something else also. Like both of that things happened at like the same time, and I wasn't really in the mindset to go on a honeymoon. So we kind of like postponed that she went, still went to France, but she just went and did other things and like toned down the hotels from like romantic level five to like romantic level zero, I guess. <laughs> wow. Okay. But she said something about France. We'll nice. see. Okay. Nice. nice. Well, we definitely appreciate you coming on the show. We'll have you back again though. Cause there's so much we can talk about. I, I really, yeah, we were just talking about travel and, I, I know, like we could have a whole, you know, Puracell travel, like <laughs> interviews and we could do Puracell pod, all about frugality and, and, you know, living off the grid. And I mean, Mike kind of lives off the grid now. So I do, I do. He, he does. I never hear from him. It's but. real life, right? Oh yeah. yeah. Uh, it's intense, but it's fun. We love it. <laughs> so if you haven't had a chance, make sure to follow the college picker on Instagram, the college picker on YouTube. He, I'm telling you. Every single time I watch, I learn something, whether it's about travel, whether it's about reselling, whether it's about just life. So, Eric, thanks so much for being on our podcast. Thanks for having me on, guys. You're awesome. So please follow him. So with that being said, make sure to be real. Be relevant. And be reselling. Peace. Peace.